Yeah, yeah, it's working. The counter is definitely working. And can when I speak, do you see the little needle dance? And then when you speak, do you see your needle dance? Yeah, yours is definitely dancing. Can you, yeah, I see dancing. Dancing, dancing. All right. I see dancing too. <laughs> So this is this is new. We're doing it. We're doing it uh, transcontinental. That's exciting. Yeah, first time, not in your living room. First time, and and uh, uh, more shockingly than that, this is uh, going to be uh, basically trading places. You arrived back in the states, and uh, I just left. Yeah. So so, where are you exactly right now? I'm in Germany on my way to uh, the beautiful country of Georgia in the Caucasus. Um, where I just happened to be. Just happened to be. I did, I did not know that. Well, no, in fact, I did. Um, so uh, tell me about your impressions. I mean, I've been to Georgia before. So uh, how was the trip? Um, it, so it's a beautiful country. There's no doubt about that. Um, what is there doubt and, about? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought it was really beautiful. I mean, the landscapes, the mountains, the valleys. I thought it was actually quite visually striking. Mm-hmm. And that said, you know, it's interesting for me. I'm, I haven't spent a lot of time in, in uh, how should I put this, um, underdeveloped European countries. When I think about European countries, I'm more, uh, I'm more familiar with the ones that are what we would call developed or advanced countries. Mm-hmm. Do you count, do you count Turkey as a, as a European country or in your mind is that, is that it falls outside? Well, just because I, well, just because I work on the Middle East, I tend to think of Turkey as a Middle Eastern country. Interesting. Turkey is more, more advanced than Georgia, right? As a whole, I've not been outside of Istanbul, so I don't know. What was your impressions in in that sense? Yeah, I mean, that was striking. I mean, that was definitely clear to me because I, I was first in Turkey for about a week before going to Georgia and the contrast really stood out to me in, in a way that was kind of surprising because, you know, the Middle Eastern countries that I spend time, like when I think about the Middle East, I think about that that's a category and then Europe, you know, so I guess Turkey is sort of at the, at the crossroads. Um, and in that sense, it's quite different than the other Middle Eastern countries I've spent time in. But, um, yeah, and Georgia is also just a very small country. And so I was reflecting a bit and well, you know, maybe we can talk about this later, what small countries versus big countries and how that changes the political dynamics. So when we were, um, when we were out having dinner one of the nights with our mutual friend, Ani, um, uh, there were like maybe seven of us and it was like three or four of her, um, Georgian friends. And somewhat to my surprise, the following day, it was mentioned that three of them, like uh, most of the Georgians who were there were members of parliament. So there were four Georgians and three of them turned out to be members of parliament. And they were, we were just hanging out. So I didn't, it, it was just kind of weird that they were just sitting there with us and they seemed normal and it's like a chill thing where we wouldn't have dinner here in the U.S., for example, in D.C., and you'd have three members of Congress hanging out with you at a restaurant and you wouldn't really be aware of it. I mean, you'd probably know they were members of Congress. I mean, arguably, right? Uh, you, you just you, you, it's if you were just randomly meeting with Jordans, you wouldn't necessarily fall in with uh, with all parliamentarians. I think you just uh, are hanging around with uh, with uh, with serious elites there. Right. Yeah, yeah. 
But there was something unass- there's something unassuming about small countries with small populations that everyone kind of knows everyone else, at least if you're in the more kind of college educated capital city scene. Um, it feels quite intimate in a way that I think is much more harder to to find in big countries like like the U.S. Um, or at least that was my sense of it. And, and just in terms of when we were traveling throughout the country. And um, I feel like whenever Ani, um, can we just, I guess we can just keep on talking about her friend, Ani. Sure. Because <laughs> she's just like, a li- she's a listener of the podcast. She's listened to at least one episode. At least one. At least one. But it was interesting that whenever she would always be very friendly with the Georgians that we would talk to. And, and there was a sense that there was a kind of fellow feeling, a shared identity and that they could be friendly and they could joke and they could talk for a while, even if it was just someone, just someone we kind of met who, you know, just some random, these are just random people that we would meet and she would speak Georgian with. And obviously the, the, um, the couple of us who were on the trip with her couldn't speak Georgian. Um, but like when I, when I travel through America, if I just meet random Americans throughout my travels, I'm not like, oh, I really want to talk to you because you're a fellow American citizen. That could just be because I have a kind of occasionally a somewhat antisocial vibe. And when I'm traveling, I kind of like to do my own thing. So some of it could be personality, but I think there's also something deeper there. Yeah, you know, a couple of things. Um, I mean, I think on the on the the small country thing, uh, Croatia, for example, I remember the uh the, the president for a while had this whole thing where he just basically have coffee in one of the main, one of the cafes in the middle of town. And everyone just knew you go have coffee with the, the president. It was a, it was a thing. So yeah, I mean, you, you do have that sort of level of familiarity, but you know, it's interesting what you say about, um, uh, the sort of friendliness. Um, now, I mean, uh, again, I think depends very much depends on what, 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 uh, group you fall into, but, I can tell you as a foreigner, uh, as a naturalized American citizen, um, it's, and as someone who arrived, you know, young, uh, to the United States, one of the most striking things is, uh, in general, complete strangers in America starting up conversations with you, whether it's about your dog or about something about small talk, which, which just again, now these are all generalizations, but I would say, uh, a lot of Europeans <laughs> end up being really taken aback by that. Like, why, why are these people talking to me? You know, it's, uh, I don't know you. <laughs> so, so, uh, I, I think it's, 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 it doesn't quite boil down to, to just small country, big country, at least in my experience. The other thing about the sort of informality about government, um, I don't know. You, you might, you might again have a, a different perspective on this, but there's something, there's something maybe more an attitude of it's a different attitude i think of parliamentarians to uh, as opposed to basically uh our congress people now yeah it does have something to do with the size of the country and i think that the representation is so uh geographically uh diverse and spread out um but there's something about i don't know parliamentary representation that at least in my mind again very anecdotally feels more um uh more ad hoc and therefore less formal uh than uh than than the sort of system we have which seems to 
I don't know, maybe, maybe, and this is sort of a, a product of our advanced Republican decay has somehow ossified into, into more formality. I don't know, just a thought. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right about that. I mean, well, another thing, too, is just so we have one congressperson for every 600,000 citizens, right? I mean, Georgia has 3.7 million people. If they used a similar system, OK, let's test my math here. That would be that would be six members of parliament. Right. So clearly there's also a sense that each member of parliament in Georgia represents a much smaller constituency. And members of that constituency would probably have more direct access in a way that I don't have direct access to my member of Congress, whoever that happens to be. (laughs) Right. Well, you live in D.C., Um, so you're not even properly represented. So, uh, yeah, right. That's that's also true. Yeah. But like what like when I was living in Pennsylvania, like I didn't feel like I had a strong connection to my member of Congress. Um and I also and maybe so some of the smaller. So I lived in, you know, two small countries in my life to uh, so Jordan and Qatar and Qatar's a little bit different. But Jordan, I think, really stood out to me that I remember I got the phone number of the former prime minister and I just like called him up. I cold called him because I want to do an interview uh, with him. And he just like responded. I So I call and it rings and then this old dude um, speaks and is like, hello, you know, hello in Arabic. And it was the former prime minister. And I'm like, hey, uh, someone gave me your number. I ca- Can I come and like talk to you about stuff? And he was like, yeah, sure. You want to come to my place? Yeah. Like there, there's that kind of intimacy, which I think is very unusual in the American context. And it sounds like Georgia is somewhat similar to that. Um and um, but I but I also think that I wonder what you think about this sense that because Georgians are so few that they all feel a certain kind of closeness that they're sharing in a kind of national project and one that in some sense is fairly recent. I mean, we're talking about really um, the past 30 years post Soviet Union where Georgia is is becoming distinct as a nation state that is separate from that that somewhat recent past. Yeah, I mean, again, I I I I I know so little and uh just enough to to be really dangerous to myself and my own reputation for speaking about these sorts of things. It's complicated though, again, right? It's it's uh from what I understand of 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 uh, uh of Georgian history, you know, like many nations that are uh uh very mountainous, um the, the language, they have splits in language, and I think the sort of regional variations are also pretty pronounced. Um, at the same time, they, they do draw a certain sense of identity that, that goes back to, to medieval, uh, early, early times. They have claims to being, you know, the, the, one of the first, uh, uh, Christian, uh, societies and their, their church, uh, takes its, its links very, very far back. But yeah, I mean, you're right. At the same time, you know, the, the modern identity has to be shaped with, you know, the, the basically the reaction to uh, uh, both the very recent Soviet past and then Russian imperialism, which is, you know, they've had um, they've had uh, Russians basically running their business for uh, for for quite some time. The the the. The interesting thing is, of course, that that uh, the Georgians themselves have been, um, or at least their nobility has been, uh, a part of the Russian Empire and, and are participants in it. And uh, you know, uh, and then there's the, the thing about Stalin and Beria, two two of the most prominent Georgians uh, in in the 20th century. 
So uh, it, it's a it's a it's a complicated thing how these identities work, uh, especially in small countries. And it's it's um, uh, you know again coming from the Balkans, the way these things uh, sort of happen, uh, these histories that uh, sometimes are overdetermined, what people choose to latch onto. Uh, even when language is there and, you know, several different nations can communicate perfectly. It's, it's fascinating, but it seems like there, there are very few hard and fast rules for how these things work. Yeah. Well, I should clarify that, um, I, I was just on vacation. So I, yeah, I mean like, <laughs> <laughs> no, of course, of course. So it's interesting. Like you kind of absorb certain things, even though like I was really trying to take a break from politics. I didn't want to engage intellectually too much. Yeah. Um, which can be dangerous on a vacation, I think. I, I sort of did disappear for two weeks. And I really was very self-conscious about like not tweeting. I maybe tweeted one thing which was not substantive. And I maybe sent two emails that I sort of had to respond to. But it was really like the first complete total vacation that I've done in a long time for a pretty significant period of time. I mean, two weeks is longer than my usual by, by quite a bit, I would say. So, um, and you were here in DC and I guess you were still working. There's something, there's a very, it's a very interesting feeling to feel that you're completely detached from things that are happening in your country and in some sense, the broader world for a significant period of time and then you come back and I'm not even really trying to catch up. Like if that stuff happened, I don't need to go back in time and realize that those things happen. I mean, obviously the bed bugs controversy got to me inevitably. There was no way to escape that no matter how much I tried. Yeah. Look, I mean, um, when I was, uh, well, when I was younger, uh, when my father was younger, um, we would go, uh, sailing in the summer and, uh, while in Croatia in particular, they've, they've started putting up or they had started putting up at the time. And now it's the entire Adriatic is, is covered in, in, um, an actually pretty good high speed internet. Um, the, uh, at the time I really would disconnect. And I mean, profoundly disconnect, you know, just off, off the grid. Uh, maybe, you know, uh, in, in the evening I could check up on the email, but more often than not, we just sort of listen to the radio to get the news, you know? And I, I remember the first day would be this sort of feeling of anxiety of, uh, you know, I'm missing out, maybe second day less so. And then by the third or fourth day, I absolutely did not care, did not miss it. I, I, I could feel, I could feel time just sort of taking a different, a different pace for the whole thing. And, and just, uh, it, it it's something I, I really, really came to, to treasure. And yeah, just like you, you know, you come back um, and you, you you're sort of, well, I missed it. OK, no big deal. And you just sort of uh, let it drift off. And I don't know it to me, that is still one of those really important lessons um, about, well, the importance or non-importance of the stuff that, that we get caught up in, especially with all this, you know, as social media has, has accelerated to this level. Uh, but just in general, even before, you know, Twitter was what it was today, it was this feeling that if I'm not even following the news very closely, so much of the news that, you know, the screaming headlines, it's just, it's just, uh, one damn thing after another. Um, and, uh, you know, it definitely adds up to things and there definitely are turning points that one needs to, you know, be on the lookout for and to understand, uh, but so much of it is, uh, 
it's contextualized by just taking a step back, the sort of relative importance of, of what it should be in any case, I think. Yeah. And I mean, obviously there were a couple of important things that did filter to me that I was aware of, but if we're talking about things that don't rise to the level of like a mass shooting is important and people should be aware of that, but things short of that, um, a lot of it doesn't actually, in some sense, doesn't actually matter. Like if I wasn't aware of a controversy on Twitter, then was it even real? Yeah. Like it's almost like, because I mean, by definition, if I don't know about something, it's not real to me. And there are certain things that probably happen that I am simply not aware of. And, and, you know, life goes on and to kind of have that, that broader, like, it's hard, it's hard to, it's hard to explain, I guess, but I think to have a broader sense that most things don't matter. Some things do and being able to distinguish between those two different categories and not getting sucked in to the minute details of the specificities of the day in and day out debate and to just try to keep the sense of like, what, what are the broader trajectories? And that's ultimately what matters. Um, so I just felt like being able to kind of take that step back was really helpful for me. And, um, and that, and I was able to kind of reflect, you know, there were things that I did think about in a much more natural way um, so one thing that I think that I mentioned to you when we were talking about what do we want to at least touch on in this podcast, I kind of flippantly texted you. Let me see. I actually have it right here. <laughs> okay. It was like, Demir asks on, on text, what's our subject? Question mark. I respond, things I'm thinking about, colon, why nationalism kind of sucks, disappearing for two weeks, exile, Democracy promotion abroad, small versus big countries. Obviously, there's a lot there. But so the we, thing that gotten, was like, we, we've gotten through two of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So go on. But you know, it's interesting. <laughs> but it's interesting that why nationalism kind of sucks. As someone who I think is in at least in some ways sympathetic two aspects of the nationalist turn in our politics. I mean, one thing that struck me and that I just felt kind of naturally is the arbitrariness of nation states. And I think that does, and there's reasons for that. So there was one, there was this one area of Turkey that I passed through called Kayakoy. And there's a kind of, there's a very eerie ghost town. It's almost like an eerie ghost town because no one actually lives there anymore. There um disinhabited stone buildings, the ruins of them, basically, but they're not ruins from like 2000 years ago, even though they kind of seem like that. They're ruins from the early 20th century when there was a population exchange between Turkey and Greece. So uh, Turkish Christians, or at least Christians residing in Turkey, who were many of them of, of um, Greek in some sense, um, went back, went back in quotation marks to Greece. And then Greek Muslims then um, were transferred, if you will, to Turkey. So this, this little town was a, basically a Greek community that was somewhat self-contained and they disappeared or left, uh, but they disappeared from Turkey and they were no longer there. And then these buildings became uninhabited 
And the Turkish authorities, I think, rightfully and importantly, preserve these ruins and now they're a, a tourist attraction. But also, I think they offer a lot of insight into some pretty, pretty big questions. I assume a lot of people like just like the way it looks because it's fascinating visually. But for me, I was like thinking to myself, I mean, nationalism is almost always and has almost always been a violent process of homogenization. And that's what allows nations to become nations and that you actually have to sort people out in some sense. And and the U.S. is somewhat of an anomaly in, the, anomaly in this regard. But many European countries were able to become homogenous because of what were in effect population transfers, but also in some cases ethnic cleansing and we've seen more recent examples of efforts to ethnic cleanse and sort out in the Balkans. But nationalism always involves some kind of homogenization project. And to see this ghost town, this relic of the past from the early 20th century, was a reminder of the violence, even if people voluntarily prefer to live among their fellow their fellow Greek Christians, and that was ultimately their preference. Presumably some people would have preferred to say preferred to stay, but I assume that many um, many of the Greek Christians who were, who were living in Turkey um, did actually prefer um, did prefer to leave. But there's a kind of violence there because not everyone did, and ultimately there wasn't a choice, and that is a violent act of population transfer. Right. I mean, I think it's a coercive inc- act. They, I mean, it was it was a war, and they were you know, to put it gingerly encouraged, right? <laughs> I mean, there was, uh, there was talk about ethnic cleansing. I mean, in the towns were towns were raised, massacres happened on both sides. I mean, it was, uh, it was, it was very much, uh, uh, pushed, right? I mean, the, 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 it's again, one of those things that's, um, that is so interesting in so many ways you can slice it and dice it because, I was reading, um, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher this because I don't have it anywhere near me, but, um, I was reading a, a, uh, this book about sort of the Balkans in the, the 19th century. So one of the th- sort of, you know, theses about nationalism, or at least sort of the one conceptualization is that it's very much an elite project that goes down. And there are, you know, many, 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 uh, much evidence for this. And the one anecdote from this book was the frustration of, I believe it was, um, some uh, Greek, uh, urbane Greek, uh, going out uh, proselytizing for Greek identity in the countryside and uh, being frustrated by the obstinacy of uh, a peasant somewhere in the countryside who, uh, even though uh, spoke Greek, um, you know, fully self-identified only as a Christian. Uh, and uh, I believe that, that, again, I'm probably mangling this anecdote, but I, I think his, uh, uh, his church was Bulgarian. And, you mm. know, again, when pressed on both sides, he's like, I don't know, whatever, you know, language isn't important. That's not what binds me to anything. I'm a Christian, leave me alone, you know? So yeah. there is this sort of, and this is, it's interesting in the Balkans because I, I it, it came so late. And I think uh, uh, a lot of this process, you know, uh, um, of, of this differentiation. So you have more of these anecdotes of, of sort of creation uh, and yeah, it's, it's usually accompanied by war, but you know, I just want to maybe sound you out on this because when we talk about nationalism and talk about the evils of nationalism, um, the one thing that, that, that I always hasten to add is that it's not, it's not one of those things that is really optional. 
You know what I mean? I, I think Americans in general fall into this trap a lot and say, well, 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 you know, just you just have to get over it and learn to live together. And, you know, if only you do this, that, and then you'd have prosperity and the rest of these things. But, you know, I mean, again, there's there's the the sort of uh, the simplistic argument that it's a, a project of evil scheming elites pushing their ideas of, of you know, sectarian division on, on, a, on a sort of uh, undifferentiated peasantry that's actually resisting it and, you know, is living comfortably for, for the long time. But then there's other theories like I, I think Ernst Gellner has a, the, the, the long theory of, of how basically the Industrial Revolution ends up demanding uh, that this kind of differentiation happens. I mean, that it's a product of basic economic development that, uh, you know, it, it requires a certain kind of homogenization, a certain kind of raising of the educational level. And an education on the state level necessarily then starts privileging a common language and a common set of traditions. And then there's those other things that, you know, uh, that, that uh, again, you sort of alluded to about the, you know, the importance of religion, uh, and uh, as as a sort of sense of community, right? That that these are things that bind, and sort of you know what we were, what I was sort of uh, shooting in the dark about sort of Georgian history there as well. Um, it's uh, it's it's interesting, and it's it's um, it's it's complicated. Yeah, and so so if you're like if you were say in the in the early 20th century, a Greek Orthodox Christian living in what is today modern what is today Turkey. It's it's unfortunate, but completely reasonable for ex individual non Turkic Christian to say, "Well, ho! Oh, if Turkey is becoming a nation state and it's going to become pre- predominantly Muslim and will be ruled by Muslim authorities, I would maybe that person would maybe prefer to live in a Christian majority country, even if the even if." they had been residing in Istanbul and loved the city and felt a kind of personal attachment to the city, that it's it's completely understandable that people would have a preference for a different kind of community. And um and I think it is hard to go from a situation where well, before nation states, um this was less of a problem, but when when Turkey becomes Turkey and becomes an aggressively nationalist state, which it did become very quickly um, in the 1920s, that was going to be a more difficult situation for any Christians who who remained in Turkey. Um, and so when we say as Americans, well, shouldn't Christians be able to live um comfortably in a Muslim majority nation state. Yes, ideally that should be the case, but do you want to take the risk? I mean, you don't know what's going to happen. And, and I think so elites are encouraging some of these population exchanges and saying Christians should live with Christians and Muslims should live with Muslims, but it's also something that resonates on a base level with ordinary people who have to make choices about what their community is. Um, and I think there's something tragic about that, but also something very under, something understandable and digestible. I mean, we can understand why people would incline in, in, incline towards certain kinds of communities rather than others. I mean, because ultimately Turkey is, is, um, I mean, even the name would suggest, I mean, it is, it is the nation of, of Turks, 
And obviously there is a Kurdish minority, but there there have been issues as well and repression and civil conflict for the Kurdish minority. So anyway, it's just all to say that, um, and I think you said this earlier, Demir, that there's something required, there's, there's something almost inevitable about the nationalist turn, but there's something just sad about it. And you wonder, you know, did it have to be this way? But in some sense, in some sense, it happens in a very natural way because it's happened throughout the world where people did create nation states. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, um, I think it, it's, it's, it's normal to regret the human consequences of these things. Um, and ultimately, you know, one, one can't ignore the human consequences of these things. They're massive. I mean, the, the largest, the largest, some of the largest massacres, you know, the, the 20th century result, uh, result are, are the direct byproduct of these, uh, this process of nation forming. But it's, it's, you know, I, I just want to come back to this because I, it, I feel like it really does keep popping up in our politics. And I'm not, I'm not, uh, saying this as someone who is, um, particularly, uh, enthusiastic about this turn towards nationalism, uh, on the right, because I, I think it's not, it's not well considered. I think people are trying to now appropriate this word in some sort of way to justify a certain kind of politics. Um, but at the same time, as a reaction to this, a, a certain kind of really, I think, quite frankly, stupid approach to, to thinking about these issues is cropped up in, in the way we talk about it. Um, I don't know. There was that notorious explainer, uh, in the New York Times, maybe two years ago, uh, about, you know, nationalism and, and really was framed in this, in the sense that it's an unmitigated disaster and the product basically of some kind of false consciousness, you know, and that, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it dovetails also very nicely to that sort of, uh, the type of, of thinking, uh, you know, the, you might call sort of liberal world order, uh, uh meliorism, uh, for shorthand, you know, uh, this idea that, well, you know, we've transcended this, or at least part of humanity has transcended this. And the, the, the role of the, re- of this transcendent part of humanity is to, to spread the, the good word of, of post-nationalism and things like that. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I personally, as a, as a, uh, committed secularist, I, I can smell out, uh, the religiosity, the sort of, uh, messianic fervor in that kind of, uh, uh, in that kind of, uh, talk. And it, 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 it just strikes me as just that, you know, uh, basically, uh, messianism, not, not really grounded in any sort of understanding of what, uh, how the world has been operating on any understanding of history. Uh, and I think, you know, a, a pretty shallow understanding of anything outside of the United States by a lot of these people. But so I would just, ca- one thing I would just maybe counter on, um, that, uh, so I'm not a committed secularist as I think our listeners may, may be aware. Um, but, uh, so I think that human beings, and we've sort of touched on this in previous podcasts, that human beings are believers. There's a need to believe, there's a desire to believe, and it then becomes a question, if you take that premise, of what do you choose to believe in? Now, the nation state is one option, a local religious community is another, the family, if you want to really dial it down to kind of the basic units, the family is another option. 
Um, and some people want to essentially make the state into what is, in some sense, a bigger family with the leader as the father figure or the founding father of the nation and so on. So all these things kind of mix together in interesting ways. But we have to choose some level of community. And now, um, I guess, Demir, you probably don't identify with a particular believing community in a secular or metaphysical sense. So they'll correct me if I'm wrong. And probably, I, I suppose, friends like a friend group or an intellectual community, the one that I guess we both would maybe think that we're part of here in D.C., however you want to describe that. Perhaps that's a kind of believing community. But I think like at some basic level, even if it doesn't apply entirely to uh, quote unquote uh, bad elites like us, most human beings need to believe in community. Yeah, no, I, for sure. Only thing I'm, I was getting at that there's a, there's a kind of uh, ideology that I think has sprung up um, and you see it in, I, I would say in, in a, you know, basically our set, if you want to define it very broadly, uh, which, which, uh, you know, I, I, I forget if we've actually referred to it this way, but I, I like to, to talk about it as the religion of Americanism. I was saying just that, that, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, that our, our, uh, larger social group, uh, is beholden to a different kind of religion. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if we've referred to it before in, uh, to a certain extent. And I would say that, 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 you know, perhaps the Germans have it even, even worse than, than we do. And it is this sort of idea that, um, uh, it's, it's, it's an ahistorical view of the world. It's an inherently progressive world, uh, view of the world. And it's a, it's messianic in the sense that it believes that, um, uh, the world can be transformed in the image of itself. Uh, in the case of the Germans, I, you know, the, the, the recent 20th century history has, uh, uh, encouraged them to, to transcend their past and adapt this, I think, you know, uh, very, uh, uh, you know, profoundly, uh, post-historical approach to things based on, uh, strong commitment to these values and a belief that if only you internalize them strongly enough, you, you can also become part of this church. Um, I, I, for good or for ill, have never felt a part of that church, the church of Americanism, even though, uh, I've, as I've told you before, becoming an American was a, profound experience for me, but I have never, uh, fallen under the, uh, uh, sway of the belief that the world could be transformed into this, um, sh uh, solely by the, the force of ideas. Um, and that's, that's sort of my reaction to when people criticize nationalism. Uh, it's not to say that nationalism hasn't caused immense human suffering, but it's, uh, that to wish it away is to, I think, uh, profoundly misunderstand the human condition in some level. Okay, so just listening to you right now, you know what, I now I'm just kind of uh, spitballing and just, I, this might not actually be particularly insightful, um, which our listeners have probably become accustomed to by now. <laughs> but, so, I think, I think that I don't, I wouldn't consider, I don't see myself as a nationalist because I'm skeptical for, of the, of the entire project. And I see, you know, for the reasons that we just discussed, but I would say that, um, if anything, I'm an Americanist. So uh, Americanist in the sense that 
maybe I believe in nationalism just for one country. I think a kind of distinctive ideological American nationalism that is idea centric rather than ethnically determined. I'm a believer in that. And maybe that's not really nationalism. Is it a belief um, in the American project or is it the belief of the exportability of that? uh, Both. Well, I I think it would be hard to believe in the American project without believing that it has some applicability beyond our own borders. I mean, that is part of the American idea. Can someone truly be an Americanist without believing that there is something to share in a kind of almost religious sense, um, in a missionary sense, if you will, uh, with other parts of the world? Maybe not all aspects of the American project, but we at least presumably would believe that some aspects are universally applicable. And I think from my standpoint, I'm different in that I don't think the American version of liberalism is that exportable thing. But the more um, the more minimalist proceduralist aspects of democracy would be to me something that Americans can or should think that all all people can have or 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 are capable of having so maybe that's how i'd put it yeah i i mean and that's obviously that's, i mean one 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 day we're gonna have like a full-on episode about democracy promotion abroad where we're gonna completely disagree with each other i mean Can't we're wait. already there but but uh <laughs> but let's uh you know we probably have to bracket that and i, I definitely want to prepare before i go head to head with you on that one <laughs> But can you believe in the American project without believing in some aspect of exportability? As, and that's an open question. I mean, what do you think? Um, I think exportability is a lot, uh, a lot more difficult than most Americans give it credit for because um, – and, you know, I mean to flip it back on the question of nationalism, it, that – you know, the question of nationalism posits the question of what is culture. Uh, and, you know, I, I think in many ways it's a cheap shot to say, well, culture, that's why you can't export. And, you know, culture is stickier and there are certain elements of American society that are part and parcel of its culture that allow individuals to come in but do- doesn't necessarily transfer very neatly to the rest of the world. But what is culture? I mean, I'm just – to a certain extent, I'm just shifting the the, the goalposts. Uh, and then, you know, one can, one can start uh, analyzing these. I think, you know uh, – you're, you're part of the way there when you talk about the exportability of, of liberalism to uh, fundamentally Islamic societies, where the contradictions are there, what's workable, what isn't. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, the sense is that, uh, also simply saying democracy or, uh, you know, the dignity of the individual, these are also very broad terms, which I think you know, are, end up being interpreted very differently in different places, even if there's only one set of terms for it. So I think it leads to a pretty large conceptual muddle with a lot of people who are trying to quote unquote promote democracy around the world. They have a, a, a certain vocabulary. They talk about these things. It works and doesn't work in different ways. Uh, I still think that the, the main problem with all of this is, is that, uh, there's a lack of humility to just how tentative and how difficult and how long-term this stuff is and how we're talking about um, uh, individual cultures developing in unpredictable ways. Uh, and that I, it, from my perspective, I think the, the nudging and pushing that we do is as often as ineffective as it is uh, proactive on these things. So again, I, you know, 
my, my, that's my approach to Americanism is, is I think that America itself is exceptional. You only have to live here for a while to fully appreciate how different it is. Um, and I don't have a, uh, you know, some kind of philosophical problem with the idea of, um, at least the conceptual idea of these, these values as pertaining universally, even though I sort of bucket them as, as moral categories, which are subject to interpretation. Uh, but you know, in the actual application of this stuff on the ground, I, I think, I think most, most people, most Americans in particular are far too, uh, optimistic and sanguine about, uh, both the possibility of doing it and the good that their efforts do in furthering those goals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so there's a lot there and we definitely should explore, like, especially after, um, I finished the whole Brooke book, uh, our man, which I still haven't finished, but that, that would definitely give us some fodder for more of this, but just kind of, so just a couple things when you were talking that, that, um, that are appearing in my head right now, and maybe they can be a preview for some future conversation, but one reason that I'm a critic of nationalism while also being somewhat sympathetic to it is democracy inevitably produces nationalist sentiment. And because I, I prioritize democracy over other values and objectives that if democracy then produces or results in nationalist outcomes, I then see nationalism in as maybe not preferable, but it becomes almost inherently okay or good in some sense because it's a product of something that I value dearly. Yeah. <laughs> but, no, yeah, no, I think that's right. It's 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 that uh democracy promotion the democracy promotion community to a certain extent, uh and this is why most people who do democracy promotion insist on liberal democracy, not democracy democracy, because uh, oftentimes just plopping down democracy on uh, uh, on a society and uh, setting expectations without, I think, the the broader cultural framework that is required for liberalism to work does lead to to substantial bloodshed as these societies, you know, come to understand themselves and then demand uh, group autonomy. And this is where then you get all this talk of, well, 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 we're not talking about democracy promotion. We're talking about uh, sanctity of the individual, individual rights, protections. Um, and it's, it's, it's those things that, that are not sticky. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's why um, I think the whole project is quite fraught. Yeah, but Demir, but not, not, yeah, but not even, blood, I, I wasn't thinking so much of bloodshed because that's not a good outcome. I, I mean more that like if we talk about, somewhat stable democracies in Western Europe here in the U.S., I mean, nationalist sentiment has risen in almost all of these cases in what are otherwise, you know, pretty advanced democracies. And this is why when I think about like Yoram Hazoni's nationalism project, which we talked about in the first episode where you have, um, I, I guess, like neo-populist Trumpians who want to give intellectual coherence to a kind of nationalist sentiment in America. Um, I mean, that again, like that's not my project, but I, I see that 
the fact that democracies are producing this in rather diverse contexts, and even if we go beyond advanced democracies to talk about um, like India or the Philippines, um, the, the the very fact that it's being produced suggests that enough people want it. And I know that's a little bit circuitous and tautological and it doesn't have to lead to violence. And in, in, in many of these cases, it isn't leading to violence. It's leading to illiberalism. It's leading to right-wing populist parties rising. But I think there's something inherently legitimate about that, even if it's, even if it's bad in the sense that this is clearly what enough, a large enough constituency will probably want for the rest of our lives. Like I don't see it as something that's going to subside where it will go back to like 2% of the population or 5%. There might for the rest of our lives be a solid 20 to 30% right-wing populist or neo-populist constituency that will almost be a permanent part of our societies. And for that reason, and because it's a product of democratic competition, should be seen as inherently legitimate and part of and a real part of the national fabric and and the national conversation. So that's sort of, I guess that's sort of what I'm getting at. And that's why I can't, I can be critical about nationalism in a kind of intellectual sense when we're talking about the Yoram Hazoni or or this um, that that project here in the U.S. or or more broadly. But I'm not going to condemn it out of hand or see it as fundamentally bad. I mean, I agree with you on that. Um... I uh, I just wonder, uh, at the same time, um, just about precision in a lot of these terms, um, wh- and especially uh, on the nationalism question, in a place like the United States, it seems um, particularly incongruous because I think it's being used in a in a weird and 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 not particularly coherent way. I think there's, there's, I'm more comfortable thinking about, um, that a, a kind of permanent, maybe reactionary, uh, 30% has risen up. I wouldn't necessarily say that reactionary necessarily will always map onto, onto nationalists or that how it maps onto whatever they call nationalists. I mean, you even alluded to it. It's different. It's very different in, in, in the, depending on the context. But I do think that there is some, there is some kind of, uh, permanent, force that is emerging in all these countries. I think that's right. And it is legitimate. I think that's right. Um, when we talk about nationalism specifically, I'm uh, uh, a lot less um, inclined to talk about legitimacy for the reasons I was saying. It just seems to me that um, that nationalism just is and is something that arises. The way it's coming up now in these things is I don't know. I'm too close to it to be able to tell whether it's part of a a broader sort of historical thing or not. Um, But uh, in general, that's my that's my feeling on that. Yeah. Well, so, okay, Demir, I um, sadly, I got to run. Sadly, I think I might have to leave. But there's two things that I want to just just put out there and we can maybe and maybe we but just things I would like to talk to you more about maybe next time or in some future podcast. I'm really interested in this idea of exile and we didn't really get to it. But, um, you know, when I was in Turkey, I spent some time with what I guess you could say are um, members or people who are in some sense part of the Syrian exile community. I mean, people 
who are, um, and there is a fair, you know, there, um, there is a big Syrian community now, um, in Turkey. And, um, these are people who may never be able to return to their country, uh, um, in this case, Syria, uh, as long as Assad is in power and there's some aspect of civil war, civil conflict in at least some parts of the country. And I've just been thinking about like, what is it like to live? What is it like to, to feel or to know that you can never return to the country that is yours? I mean, and we'll never, I guess we can't really feel that or like God willing, we'll never be able to feel that in the sense that we're Americans and America would really have to change in a fundamental way and have like some serious civil conflict for us to be exiles um, in or from our own country. Right. Um, So it's something that we can only like study and we can listen to people's stories, but in some sense it's foreign to us as Americans, that feeling of exile. And it, there's something about it that's quite terrifying to me when I think about what, of not knowing because there is a chance that the situation in your own country could change, but because, but you don't know. So you're always living in between states or, or in between emotional states, not only just physical states of never knowing where your place really is in the world and always feeling that it can change at any given moment. Also, because where you happen to be in exile, like something, things can change in Turkey where there's less, there's less welcoming or um, less tolerance for a prolonged Syrian uh, uh, Syrian uh, presence in the country. So anyway, those are just things that I was thinking about over the course of my trip. And I, I don't know, they're just, they've been weighing on me a little bit. And also the fact that um, the responsibility that we as Americans have and this is where the democracy promotion, but also the humanitarian intervention aspect of it comes, that there was a failure um, and a betrayal, in my view, of the Syrian people that has led to this very depressing, tragic situation. But this is just maybe a preview for our listeners and also for you. Like, hey, that would be cool. Like, we should probably like talk about it. It could be interesting to talk about some of that more. Definitely. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Great. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I'll, uh, I'll talk to you soon. Well, have have fun in in Germany. Yeah, yeah we'll do. <laughs> okay. See Bye, you I'm here. Bye. later.